This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The art world is constantly changing. Fortunately, there is a great new website called Art and Object that can keep you up to date. I have been loving Art and Object and loved watching a video that shows the difference between an original work of art, like Girl with a Pearl Earring by Vermeer, to a high-value copy. So see that video and find Art and Object on the web at www.artandobject.com. That's www.artandobject.com. One of the reasons I was so intrigued by this concept of shock art as a theme for the current season of Art Curious is that I have frequently taken some art for granted in the past. And by that, I mean I considered some works of art to be above reproach, as if they were always beloved since day one, or at least if not beloved, then accepted. Such was my original thought about the French Impressionists. This may very well be a future episode of the show someday, but here's the gist right now. I always considered the Impressionists to be boring, all pastels and light, flowers and dappled landscapes. But it wasn't until I started studying art history that I discovered how totally subversive they really were, flouting art world norms and departing wildly from tradition. And it was that simple discovery that has forever changed my concept about these artists. Because sometimes we think a work of art was always great and good, or beloved by all. But even for a big name like Michelangelo Buonarotti, that wasn't always the case. Years after completing the masterpiece that is the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he was back at the Sistine again for another groundbreaking project. Only this time, the public reaction wasn't nearly so positive. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we are continuing our series of episodes dissecting single works of art that shook their worlds, covering another painting that causes waves even today. Michelangelo's stunning achievement, The Last Judgment, located in the Sistine Chapel. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Michelangelo's paintings for the Sistine Chapel ceiling are some of the most famous and recognizable pieces of religious art in the world. The iconic image from the creation of Adam panel alone, with God's outstretched and determined fingers inching close to Adam's limp hands and imbuing him with life, that's reproduced so frequently on coffee mugs, t-shirts, and tattoos around the world that we can barely look at them with fresh eyes, as we're so used to seeing them in riffs and pop kitsch variations everywhere. But their exposure is, first and foremost, a sign that we still find them important and inspiring, even today. As we discussed in the second episode of our last season, all about the rivalry between Michelangelo and Raphael, that's episode 33 if you want to go back and listen again, the Sistine Chapel frescoes are quite possibly 
the number one must-see attraction for art lovers in all of Rome. Indeed, even during Michelangelo's time, they were considered a revelation. Giorgio Vasari, who we've mentioned multiple times on this show, was a contemporary of Michelangelo's and one of his biggest supporters. About the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he wrote, quote, This work has been and truly is a beacon of our art and has brought such benefit and enlightenment to the art of painting that it was sufficient to illuminate a world which for so many hundreds of years has remained in a state of darkness. And to tell the truth, anyone who is a painter no longer needs to concern himself about seeing innovations and inventions, new ways of painting poses, clothing on figures, and various awe-inspiring details. For Michelangelo gave to this work all the perfection that can be given to such details. Unquote. I mean, wow. Really, Vasari's basically saying to his readers, hey, you guys, don't even bother trying something new and original because Michelangelo's got you beat. That being said, not everyone was as enamored with Michelangelo's Sistine paintings. As it seems to go in art history, nothing goes without criticism or controversy. Throughout the years, there have been quite a few snags surrounding the universal acceptance of one particular work found today in the Sistine Chapel. But it's typically not the ceiling frescoes themselves that raise the most ire, but instead another work, the large altar wall fresco, The Last Judgment. Let's back up a little and give a bit of detail about how the fresco for The Last Judgment came about. If you listened to episode 33, You'll remember that Michelangelo, under the commission of the dynamic Pope Julius II, completed the works of the Sistine ceiling over a four-year span, from 1508 to 1512, transforming a generally middling Vatican structure to this end-all, be-all, can't-miss chapel that is visited by thousands, thousands of people every single day. The artist gained worldwide acclaim and beat his own expectations with the Sistine ceiling, an audience began to consider Michelangelo the master of the human figure and one of the greatest artists alive. Everyone wanted to work with him for many years after, and that included the papacy once again. Nearly 25 years after he completed the Sistine ceiling, in 1535, Michelangelo received a commission from Pope Clement VII. As always, the popes wanted to keep the tradition alive of working with the best contemporary artists around. And why not bring the great Michelangelo back to create a large altarpiece? It is important to note that at the time, the Sistine Chapel wasn't open for general worship. It was simply dedicated to the practice and preaching of the highest members of the papal court. It was where the leaders of the church came together to celebrate special events in the church calendar, where the Pope's body was shown prior to his funeral, and where the cardinals still meet today to elect the next Pope. So keep that in mind. This was a special place, but one that was meant for the eyes of the very few. Scholars have noted that it looks like the proposal for the altarpiece was generally broached with Michelangelo as early as 1533, specifically as a piece depicting the resurrection of Jesus, or a general scene of the resurrection of the dead. Those were fairly typical subjects for altarpieces, wherein the faithful could rest their eyes on triumphant scenes while attending Mass or in the midst of prayerful contemplation. But somewhere along the line, a more somber subject matter was proposed, whether by Michelangelo, the Pope, or others is unknown. The Last Judgment depicts the story of Christ on Judgment Day, after his second coming, separating the blessed and the damned in the afterlife. It's a swirling triumph of painting, and one in which your eye can barely keep still because there's just so much to see. 
In total, Michelangelo painted some 300-plus figures, including Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and a slew of saints and angels who welcomed the saved into heaven at Jesus' right side and watched the damned descend into hell at his left. Now, this was the type of image that has been painted again and again, one of those standard religious scenes that was depicted long before Michelangelo and long after him as well. By no means was it the subject matter that was the issue here. But at the completion of Michelangelo's spectacular altar wall fresco, there was trouble. Big trouble. And all the grousing and argument over this work of art continued for even centuries later. So, what's the issue? It was the way Michelangelo chose to portray the Last Judgment. Even more specifically, all of those characters in the scene itself. To contemporary critics, Michelangelo had created a scene chock-full of nudity, depravity, of all manners of sin that would be utterly detrimental to any and all members of the church. Nudity. In a chapel setting. With Jesus himself visualized therein. While the revealing nature of the Last Judgment might not be shocking or upsetting to us as contemporary viewers, the nude bodies and their contorted figures stunned and rocked the art world and the Catholic Church alike. More on this coming up next, right after this break. As listeners to this show, I'm sure that you love diving deep into areas that interest you as much as I do. And that's why I really want you to check out The Great Courses Plus. I love this streaming service because I can get unlimited access to learn from people who are so passionate about their areas of expertise. And there is a wide variety of topics to explore. The best news is that I can watch or listen to lectures anytime, anywhere. Right now, The Great Courses Plus has an awesome class that I've been enjoying. It's called Museum Masterpieces, The Louvre. And I think this is a fascinating course whether you are an art history aficionado or a newbie to art history, because as many of us know, there is so much more to The Louvre than just the Mona Lisa. Now is the perfect time to check out Museum Masterpieces because The Great Courses Plus is giving my listeners an exclusive limited time offer. You can get your first three months for only $10 a month. That's three full months to learn about anything in the world that interests you and at an incredible discount. But to get this fantastic savings, you must sign up through my URL within the next few weeks. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. Three full months for $10 per month, only by using my URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. If you're a regular listener to Art Curious, then you've heard me thank our production partner, Kabunki, for making each of our episodes sound so incredible. They've been with us since the beginning, and now they're here for you too. Need production and editing help for your own podcast? Sure. Full service video for your film or marketing project? You bet. How about original content for your website or campaign? No sweat. Kabunki does it all. For video, audio, or whatever your medium, their award-winning team has the tools and talent to elevate everything you do. Get to know our friends at Kabunki like we do and tell them our curious sent you. Visit kabunki.com. That's K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. Kabunki, a silly name, but superb content. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's that time of year again when everyone is thinking about thoughtful gifts, either to receive or to give to others. Think about giving the gift of Audible this holiday season. Now is the very best time to do it with a very special offer. On Audible, you can access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including everything from bestsellers, motivational books, mysteries, thrillers, the best memoirs, and more. With Audible, you can choose three titles every month. That's one audiobook and two Audible originals that you will not be able to hear anywhere else. And you can listen on the go, anytime, on any device, anywhere. Recently, I've really been loving listening to Tana French's new book, The Witch Elm. It is a fascinating thriller, it's extremely well-written, and if you like a good mystery with excellent characters, this will definitely suck you in. So for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. And to get this, you want to go to audible.com slash artcurious, or you can even text artcurious to 500-500 to get started. So start today, audible.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. A brief examination of Michelangelo's figures in The Last Judgment shows some of what the general public had claimed to be offensive. Pietro Arentino, a famous literary critic and figure at the time, wrote that The Last Judgment, quote, makes such a genuine spectacle out of both the lack of decorum in the martyrs and the virgins and the gesture of the man grabbed by his genitals that even in a brothel, these eyes would shut so as not to see it. It would be less of a sin for you not to believe than by believing in this manner to weaken the faith of others, unquote. It seems a bit like pearl grabbing in essence, and one that is strangely and possibly hypocritical, considering that Arantino was himself a noted and widely read writer of pornography during the Italian Renaissance. But what really matters here is that Arantino stirred up some genuine feelings about Michelangelo's work, feelings that were widely shared by critics and the faithful alike. Historically, Nudity and art have gone hand in hand, and back in the Renaissance, it was basically de rigueur to paint or carve nudes. And indeed, during the Renaissance, there was a huge uptick in studying and portraying the nude figure, as the tenets of humanism declared that the human body could be the most beautiful thing represented in art, and the most realistic and accurate depictions of the naked human body would therefore be the best thing. That being said, there was truly a time and a place for the depictions of the nude figure, and in most religious art, nudity is tied to sin, especially the concept of original sin. So think about depictions of Adam and Eve. Their nudity is called to attention only when it is shameful and not something to be proud of. But in The Last Judgment, Michelangelo doesn't delineate between the sinners and the saved for nudity. All are naked, even the virtuous. Heck, even Christ is mostly nude here, with the exception of a rather skimpy loincloth. On top of all that, He's also sporting a very muscular but strangely disproportionate torso, damning sinners with ease and nary a batted eye. And then, the final Jesus-related straw. Christ here is beardless. What? I know, I can hear you freaking out right now. But back in the day, it was an art historical tradition to represent a bearded Jesus. Just think back to our previous episode on Durer's self-portrait, 
where he's modeling his own hirsute image on that of Christ. Michelangelo's representation of Jesus was just another element that added up to a significant shock in its contemporary moment. Paul III, who was Pope at the time that Michelangelo was completing the work, was granted a preview of the work before it was done, and he brought along his master of ceremonies, a man named Biagio da Cesena, to check it out with him. According to Vasari, Cesena was so horrified by what he saw that he recoiled and exclaimed to the Pope, quote, it is the most disgraceful thing that in so sacred a place there should have been depicted all of those nude figures exposing themselves so shamefully and that it was no work for a papal chapel but rather for the public baths and taverns." Unquote. So here, we can see that Chesna is mimicking the concerns of Aretino and other critics. The twist here, though, is that Chesna had this negative reaction in Michelangelo's presence. And Michelangelo, who was not yet done with the altar painting, was then able to take some long-lasting revenge. He painted Chesna's portrait, from memory apparently, onto his scene as the mythological figure of Minos, a judge of the underworld, located at the bottom right side of the work. He's given donkey's ears, Michelangelo's blatant way of calling him an ass, and is similarly as naked as other figures except that his nudity is covered, oh so ridiculously, by a coiling serpent whose sharp fangs are attached to, well, somewhere rather sensitive. When Chesna discovered this, he was naturally furious and complained directly to Pope Paul. But here's the thing about Paul, like Julius II before him. He had faith in Michelangelo and was the first to protect the artist's work and vision. Pope Paul joked that his religious jurisdiction didn't descend to hell or to the inhabitants of the underworld, and that Chesna, as Minos, was just going to have to stay. So let this be a lesson to all of us. Don't make Michelangelo, or any other working artist, mad. Also, it's nice to have the Pope on your side. But even the Pope was really having a very hard time controlling the PR disaster that became the Last Judgment. The clamoring to edit Michelangelo's designs or indeed just completely paint over it, was so loud that Michelangelo himself couldn't help but be affected. Surely such criticism must have felt like undue torture. And perhaps this sensation, that he was being martyred for his art, inspired him to add another prominent portrait within his Last Judgment scene, his own. Next to Christ's left foot is the figure of St. Bartholomew, a martyr who had been skinned for his saintdom represented by an odd vision of himself holding up his shed skin like that of a snake. And whose face was rumored to be that of St. Bartholomew in that shed skin? Michelangelo himself, his self-portrait dangling precariously between heaven and hell, a persecuted cast-off with hope of final redemption. Even decades after the completion of the fresco in 1541, criticism still remained. Inspired partly by the disastrous responses to the Michelangelo piece and partly by raging criticism stirred up by the Christian Reformation, the final session of the Council of Trent, the group tasked with counter-Reformation concerns, put pen to paper and defined Catholic art once and for all, with words that declare, in part, quote, Every superstition shall be removed. All lasciviousness should be avoided. Figures shall not be painted or adorned with a beauty exciting to lust. There must be nothing seen that is profane, nothing indecorous, seeing that holiness becometh the house of God." Unquote. Understanding that much of this new declaration clearly applied to the content of the Sistine, they also made an official proclamation that, quote, "...the pictures in the apostolic chapel should be covered over, and those in other churches should be destroyed if they display anything that is obscene 
or clearly false." Unquote. Michelangelo died in February of 1564, and with his death came the critical action of editing or censoring the Sistine Chapel paintings. A follower of Michelangelo named Daniele da Volterra was brought aboard to paint over many of the offending elements, specifically the plethora of genitalia. From most accounts, this caused at least some anguish for Volterra, simply because he considered himself a sincere admirer of Michelangelo and was loath to make changes to the original work of art. But changes he made, so much so that he ended up with a nickname from those edits, Il Bragatone, literally translating to the breeches maker. The story goes that he also edited out two figures significantly, totally replacing the figure of St. Catherine and completely deleting the figure of St. Blaise behind her, as it was believed that their bodies were intertwined in such a way as to suggest something less than decorous was going on between them. Other artists got in on the action throughout the years. The Spanish master, El Greco, arrived on the scene and offered to totally redo the altarpiece to make it, quote, modest and decent, and no less well-painted than the other, unquote. And other popes had their say too, with no less than three pontiffs over the centuries coming forward with the intentions of continued censorship to Michelangelo's last judgment. Rumor has it that such thoughts persisted all the way into the 20th century, with Pope Pius XI even considering taking on the tradition. Throughout the years, a total of 40 figures have been repainted, though some of these edits have been restored to their original glory in the process of restoring all the Sistine Chapel frescoes during the 1990s. More on that, by the way, in episode 19 of this podcast. Quite a few art lovers were thrilled at the prospect of The Last Judgment returning to its Michelangelo-created, nude-filled splendor, but it turns out that such a matter would have been rather difficult, if not impossible because Daniele da Volterra may have scraped away Michelangelo's designs before repainting with his own images atop it. So there wouldn't be anything to restore, in effect. And so, the decision to keep Volterra's edits were made. But that doesn't mean that we have only hearsay to understand exactly what Michelangelo's primary designs looked like. Instead, we have a contemporary copy of the work of art, and it is all thanks to the foresight of a thoughtful cardinal named Alessandro Farnese, a great patron of the arts who himself was even a collector and supporter of artistic projects, and who even owned works by Michelangelo. Knowing of the grumblings from critics and clerics alike, he independently commissioned an artist named Marcello Venusti to paint a copy of The Last Judgment in 1549. This copy is a truly irreplaceable historical document a record of the way the great Michelangelo had always intended one of his biggest works to look for the rest of time. Though Michelangelo stirred up controversy through The Last Judgment with his use of nudity, mythology, and representational style, it has become an iconic part of art history. No amount of slander, criticism, or censorship can dim its brightness. And it, alongside Michelangelo's other Sistine Chapel frescoes, is a cornerstone of Italian Renaissance painting, even if it was a little risque for its time. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it's our season finale, and we're ending with one of the same artists who finished out our last season on Rivalries. That artist's shocking, career-making debut is coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Valerie Ginzano. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, 
Our logo is by Dave Rainey at DaveRaineyDesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is primarily sponsored by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. So follow the donate links on our website for more details, where you can also find images, information, contacts, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Lastly, if you love Art Curious and want even more of what we do, you will be thrilled to know that I am available for lectures, live podcasts, and other gigs. So please contact me if you would like me to visit your museum, college, university, or art center. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in these shocking works of art history. Before we end our episode today, I want to talk about another podcast called The Simple Sophisticate. Simple Sophisticate is a podcast inspired by the art of living, and every week Shannon, the creator of the lifestyle blog The Simply Luxurious Life, shares with listeners tips on how to live a refined life on an everyday income. From achieving your goals to preparing a memorable meal, creating a capsule wardrobe, traveling the world, Francophones definitely need to tune in as Paris is a favorite destination, and just living life to the fullest without breaking the bank. If you prefer quantity over quality or just love sensible living and want a podcast that will satisfy your curiosity for life's endless questions, you have to check out The Simple Sophisticate on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Simple Sophisticate Podcast.